appreciate everyone being here, uh, coming out. Got a fall, definitely in the fall weather now. We're moving into that. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we bless you for allowing us to come tonight. Our hearts are with uh, Linda and her family. We ask your comfort on those who are mourning her loss and just the suddenness of the news. And we thank you for the hope that she has and that we all have of, of heaven and the redemption that we've had through Jesus. We ask that you give us insight tonight as we look through the Gospel of John and that we see with fresh eyes the story of your son and that we might come away with an appreciation and just a, a deeper knowledge, a deeper faith in what you have done for us through his life. And we ask this through his name. Amen. So we'll reach our final book now. We've got two more weeks of John. And uh, next week, Richard will be resuming his lesson, unfortunately, just for one week. I'll be back the week after that to finish up, and then Richard will have two weeks to finish up his. And just, just the way things worked out, it just kind of got a little choppy. Uh, but appreciate you being patient and being able to switch gears amongst the classes and the lessons here. Following Richard, Eddie will have a series, and we will continue on from there. So tonight, the Gospel of John. John opens, uh, first chapter of John, we see this event take place. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I have said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So as we think back to the road to Emmaus, again, kind of our foundation passage, we see Jesus talking to Cleopas and his friend. And what does Jesus, what does it say that Jesus did? He took Moses and the prophets and opened those scriptures up to them. So what do we see here that John starts off saying? John records the same message, doesn't he? He's, he's recording it through Philip, but it's the same message, the same context. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So John is setting the stage for us to let us know, okay, as you read through my gospel, be aware of what Moses and the prophets wrote, because that is going to help explain my gospel. And then we have this uh, phrase by Philip, come and see. And that's really the theme, a kind of a theme of John, where John's gospel is one in which he says, okay, come and see. What are we to see? That's kind of a question. Come and see what? Come and see, have we found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote? That's the question that John is wanting to answer. So let's come and see. This is a journey that John is going to take us on and see. How is he going to answer this question? Is Jesus going to answer this question? And look at what, how uh, Nathaniel responds 
And again, we're, I look at it, I'm kind of surprised that I saw you under fig tree and we have these proclamations. You are the king of Israel. We've been talking about that and just how much Israel was looking for a king in the line of David to return. Um, and you are the son of God. And again, we can, can we, do we see that as a divine title? That's how we just kind of our default reading of that is as a divine, a divine title that Jesus is God's son. But we also know this can be a royal title. David was called the son of God. The king was called God's son. So this can be an earthly title. And, and as we look at this, I'd probably lean towards uh, Nathaniel using this in a in an earthly sense, just because of typically Hebrew parallelism, where we say two things, one right after another, that kind of say the same thing. I would kind of see this son of God, meaning a royal title, and then he uses the term king of Israel. Again, that Davidic title. Jesus says, you'll see the, he <clears throat> the heavens open, the angel of God ascending and descending. Any, any recollections for this phrase here? Jacob's ladder. Yeah, Jacob's ladder. So Jacob has a, you know, has a dream, and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending in Bethel. And, and we see that event in Jacob's life there. And then Son of Man, we've seen that title really is a divine title. Again, we typically interpret it as a human title. But that truly is a divine title coming from Daniel 7. Um, so we see that in, in that case. So we're going through John. And in the background, I want us to have this question, come and see, kind of playing underneath everything. Again, we're at the beginning of John. So we've got these titles and these observations that come out very quickly in John's gospel. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Still in John 1, we have found the Messiah. And again, of him whom the law and the prophets wrote. So John has set these expectations very early on in his gospel. We come to this with a lot of hindsight, don't we? We come to this gospel already kind of knowing this stuff. So it's hard for us to put ourselves at the beginning of John and trying to read this, in essence, with fresh eyes and to see the extravagance of John's claims very early in his gospel to then look and see how does John make the case for these claims. So that's our challenge, friend. Just, just wondering, does this imply then that John the Baptist actually realized that, that Jesus was going to be sacrificed as a lamb for the sin of the world? <sighs> that's a good question. I, I don't know that I would have the answer to that. Again, um, the prevailing view would be that the coming king was a conquering king, a liberating king, much like Moses. The idea of a sacrificial king was a, a, a message that Jesus had to develop. And really, I don't know that they understood that until after the resurrection. So, um, again, Lamb of God, tough to know exactly why how is he pulling that um, again we've got the concept of David with being a shepherd and sheep but well, that, that paired with who takes away the sin yes you know, instead of coming as, a, as you say as a conqueror right right going to now uplift the Jewish right community yes yeah so. good question and you can research that and in two weeks give us your finding. <laughs> so we have this event here in John. 
where Jesus heals a lame man. Afterwards, Jesus found him. Again, the lame man who was healed in the temple that puts, sets the scene for us in Jerusalem. Behold, uh, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens. The man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But he answered and said to them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. We're going to end our class with this phrase here, the Jews. We're going to talk about that towards the end of our class and, 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 and kind of deal with that. But again, John is set, setting up the conflict and trying to see, okay, who is this Jesus? Who is this uh, person who I'm saying is the Son of God? And we see Jesus, again, declaring himself as equal to God. So we're in Jerusalem, and Jesus is healed on the Sabbath. He is making, he's made this comment, my father and I are working together. And then Jesus goes into this discussion about who he is. And so we were at the end of chapter 4, we moved through a little bit of chapter 5. Jesus says this to the Jews, the authorities or the rulers in Jerusalem. You search the scriptures. What is that referring to? Tanakh, the Old Testament, Torah. Okay, let's not think New Testament here. Let's think Old Testament in, in our terminology. So you, the leaders in Jerusalem, Search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. What does Jesus say? It is these that testify about me. <clears throat> you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is confronting these leaders in Jerusalem saying, okay, you're the ones who are searching the scriptures. You're the ones who are teaching about Moses. You are the ones who are in saying we have to follow Moses. And yet it is Moses who is writing about me. So we had the question early on, or the comment early on from Philip. What does Philip say? Philip says, we have found who? Can be interactive. And what does Jesus now say? I am the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. So we have this statement by Philip early in John's Gospel. I think we found the guy that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And now we have Jesus, in essence, confirming that and saying, yes, I am the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And if you don't believe what I'm saying, then you really aren't listening to Moses. When we look at John in the Old Testament, just as comparison um, for, and, and it's just kind of how you want to consider an Old Testament reference, so don't think these numbers are in stone. Um, roughly, it gives us, but it does give us a good representation. 
of how the gospel writers used Old Testament references, and predominantly these are, in essence, quotes. They're not a lot of the echoes that we're talking about. It's the quotes. Um, and you can see Matthew has 124. We look when we went through Matthew, we see Matthew doing a lot of, well, this was written to fulfill, and this was written to fulfill. Luke with 109, Mark with 70, and John with 27. So what that tells us is, as we look at for the Old Testament in John, it's a bit more of a challenge. Because John is not out there saying a whole lot, here's my reference. What John does you is he does use images and a figural uh, images to shine the light on who Jesus is. So our, our job is a little more difficult through John to see those Old Testament references. Doesn't mean they aren't there, but it's a little more of a challenge with John. For example, John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will have in him will have eternal life. Well, we see Moses there. So what is what event is he referencing here? Jesus is making this reference. Any recollections? When he made the Say that again. When Moses made the okay. Is it number sixteen? Close. Numbers twenty one. You got the book right. We, we, that's that's worth the Snickers if I got to bring Snickers at one of these nights. I, yeah, you, can, you got a tomato, Steve. Um, Numbers 21, they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people became impatient because of the journey. They spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food or no water. We loathe this miserable food. Down to verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So that the people of Moses came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. And you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Moses interceded for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks upon it, he will live. Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard. It came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked upon the bronze serpent, he lived. So when we see Jesus with this little phrase here, as Moses lifted up the serpent, John is calling us back to this event, and he's expecting his readers to just know this story without having to think about it. They're fully aware of that. Now, why would they be fully aware of that? Well, let's go. It's in Numbers. It's in the Torah. And for the synagogue, the synagogue is going to typically read through the Torah every year. Within, They typically have 52 different passages as they move through Torah every year. Right now, uh, they're, they're in Genesis right now. Okay, so the synagogue right now would be starting a new cycle through the Torah because Rosh Hashanah has just happened, the new year. And so right now, synagogue readings are in Genesis. So if you're 40 years old, you've been hearing this story once a year. That's why they have that familiarity. That's why these echoes were easy for them to see. There's also one in Isaiah 52, though, where here Isaiah says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Again, that sets the stage. What's, uh, what's Isaiah 53? Isn't that the suffering servant passage? So John can take us back here and let us, again, recall that passage from Isaiah. John 1, 1, this one we kind of get, right? 
John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. Where does this take us back to? Genesis 1.1, same phrase in Greek, we look in the Septuagint, look in John, also Greek, we get this same phrase. So in one sense, what is John saying? How could we interpret that? Is he telling us the chronology of Jesus? Is that the idea, to tell us Jesus was pre-existent? Real loud, because I am deaf tonight. Jesus always was. So that's one way we can interpret that. How else can we look at this? What is Genesis 1 about? Creation. Could John be saying, here is a, here is a new creation that's happening. Here is a second creation that's happening. Uh, uh, yeah, that's there. How does, how does Paul talk in Romans about Jesus? He compares him to who a lot? Again, we're on the creation mode. Who does Paul compare Jesus to? Adam. So we have this, we have this concept possibly of a new creation here within Jesus. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. But if, when we look at John overall, we can see John's gospel divided into two sections, major sections here. A book of signs and a book of passion. The signs are where he's doing his miracles, doing some teaching, and then the passion would be more the time leading up to the cross and the time of the cross. And you can see that just that portion of time takes up a big chunk of John's gospel. Um, when we look at the book of signs, again, those first 12 chapters, when we see how John referenced the Old Testament, look and see, look, see how John does this. Um, as Isaiah the prophet said, it was written, as it was written, it was written, as the scripture said, has not scripture said, has it not been written, as it has been written. So all the way through John chapter 12, we have this, this common phrase here by John saying, it has been written. But we get to John 12, towards the end of that, and now something happens. We see a shift happen in John. John 12, it says, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Have you noticed that before? Kind of pull that out and spotlight that a second. That seems odd. For Jesus to have gone through this much of his ministry, and the result of that is to go away and hide. We don't think of Jesus hiding. That's what John says. Look at, look at what John then says. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This is in essence the end of the signs that Jesus does in John. So here's a transition that John makes. And again, I just find the, the phrasing interesting. Now look at how John refers to passages in the Old Testament. Because now we're getting to this suffering servant, as Fran kind of mentioned before. Now we're getting to the sacrifice. And that's not making sense. Because we're expecting the king to be a liberator. So how do we make sense of the sacrifice of Jesus? So how does John now change his terminology when he's referring to the Old Testament? To fulfill the word of Isaiah. And again, so we have a double quote here. And then, so that scripture might be fulfilled. To fulfill the word, that scripture would be fulfilled. To fulfill scripture, to fulfill scripture. And then finally, again, a double quote. 
to fulfill Scripture. And again, look at the change John has here and how he's referring. Initially, it's as it is written. But now he switches to to fulfill. Why would he make that change in relationship to the passion, to the sacrifice, the cross? What he's saying is, this was not an accident. Jesus dying on the cross is not some accidental event that occurred. This is to fulfill what was written in the scripture. This was how it has been designed. This is what scripture is testifying to. So if you're looking for a liberating king, no. We are looking for a suffering servant. The passion is a fulfillment of Scripture. Fulfilling, uh, again, it doesn't mean uh, a predictive sense, but it can mean Jesus is, is completing this. When we looked at Matthew, Matthew had a lot of these fulfill statements also, didn't he? Where were Matthew's fulfill statements generally concentrated? Anyone recall? 50-50 chance here, beginning or end? At the beginning, very good. You can get some tomatoes too. So most of Matthew's fulfillment citations were at the beginning of his gospel because he was setting the stage of saying Jesus is, is going to complete Torah. Where are John's? This one should be real easy. John's are at the end. Okay, All at the end. And again, to, to let us know that the, the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross is in accordance with Scripture, not against it. We're going to look, so, so we got it initially, Philip said that we found the one of whom who? The law and the prophets wrote. And we see this a lot, where it's the law and the prophets. Now, when we look at the book of Passion, again, we start in 13, those, those passages that we just saw in smaller type, Look at where he's quoting from. These are where John quotes from. Psalm 41, Psalm 35, and Psalm 69. Probably Psalm 41 on this one. Psalm 22, Psalm 69 again. And this last one, Exodus 12, Numbers 9, and again, Psalm and Zechariah. I don't see the law and the prophets here very much. What do we see? We see a heavy representation of the Psalms. So we know then that when, when Philip says the law and the prophets, it's really shorthand for saying all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture. And when we see these Psalms, we know that they are um, really not foreshadowing Jesus but more expressing what is going on with the cross. So again, that's an important point to note. It is not so much foreshadowing as, as giving us expressions. Yeah, I don't understand. Why is it in foreshadowing? I don't know that the psalmist had Jesus in mind as the psalmist is writing this. The psalmist is writing emotions that they are experiencing. And John is using that to bring us into the emotions and the, the experience that Christ is going through. So when we see that, um, John 15, they have done this to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. The psalmist was not saying this is going to happen to the Messiah. The psalmist was, psalmist was feeling he was hated without reason. And John is using that expression to show us what's going on with Jesus.
if that sounds that's good. Excuse me? It's completing. It is, Jesus is taking what the psalmist said and, and is really giving it a new meaning and giving it a fuller meaning. So it, it, it's not, again, we, we, let's be careful that it's, we're not trying to make it predictive. Matthew did this a lot also. Matthew um, gave us passages. Now again, Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. That is a predictive prophecy. And it was recognized as predictive. King Herod goes, where is the Messiah going to be born? In Bethlehem. Why? Well, that's what Micah said. So, but not all of the fulfill citations are predictive. We have tended to make it that. We've tended to teach and kind of look at these as predictive prophecies rather than saying that, no, they're helping us understand who Jesus is, what he went through, and he is he's just kind of filling it up uh, in that fashion. I think that comes out in your, your third from the bottom bullet, where it says, after this Jesus, knowing that all things have already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I'm thirsty. Yeah. So John will use uh, Old Testament characters in his um, in his gospel. Um, again, Abraham comes up. They again in John eight, they answered him, "We're Abraham's descendants, and we have never been enslaved to anyone." Which we look at that and we go, "Ah, that's a little bit much when you've just returned from Babylonian exile." <laughs> And Rome is now occupying Jerusalem. So how can you say we'll be free? And um, then Jesus says, uh, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I've seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. There's, there's a good bit of sarcasm in that statement. Okay, we missed the sarcasm, but Jesus is, that's very sarcastic when he says to them, you're doing the things of your father. Who's he implying their father is here? Yeah, he's implying Satan. They're thinking Abraham. Jesus isn't thinking that when he makes this statement. They answered him and said, again, this is what they're thinking, Abraham's our father. Jesus said, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But you're seeking to kill me. Abraham wouldn't have done that. So we have to ask, well, then what are the deeds of Abraham? What was he calling them to do? So when we, now we got to think back to Abraham. Remember his story. What are some of the deeds of Abraham that he may be referring to here? Say it louder again. Sorry. Complete trust. trust. Very good. How was that exemplified? Taking Taking Isaac to sacrifice him. Okay. Another what? Another episode in Abraham's life that exemplified complete trust. Got up and left. He was called. What was the initial call? Leave your father, your homeland. Leave your family. Go to a land I'm going to show you. Okay. So we've got trust, leaving that which is comfortable. Another episode. Think, okay. Think, think Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened before Sodom and Gomorrah? What? He and Lot split. He and Lot split. Let's think of another right before Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, and what what transpired in that event? Just pulling teeth here to get. Do what? 
He bargained with God a little before, just before that event. <laughs> what happened just before that? Is this saying we need to read Genesis more often or not? Hospitality. Hospitality. There, there you go. You get three Snickers for that one. <laughs> Took us a while. Yeah. He was called to leave his home in and just the hospitality to strangers. That is a bedrock of, of Jewish culture is the hospitality that you show to strangers. Again, the strangers come up. And again, when we read the story, Abraham's talking to God. God came and visited Abraham. God starts to talk to Abraham. Three strangers show up. And the text really implies that Abraham says... Um, Hang on a second, God. I need to take care of these three people first. And he goes and takes care of the strangers, and then he comes back and bargains with God. And if you look at the text, that's that's really what the text kind of implies. That he he's, he felt that entertaining strangers was worthy enough to interrupt God and say, hang on. Because that is fulfilling mercy. So Jesus says, you need to do the deeds of Abraham. Abraham showed hospitality to strangers. And you are wanting to kill me. That's not the deeds of Abraham. So that's, that's the significance of what John is telling us here. Uh, we looked at this Sunday, uh, this, this event here. Uh, he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near parts of ground that Jacob gave to his son, and Jacob's well was there. Uh, Jesus wearied from the journey. Uh, the, the woman at the well says, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well? So what event are they talking to? They're talking back to Genesis 29. Uh, Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, Sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up, rolled the stone from the mouth of the well, and watered the flock of Laban. Uh, so here, Jacob meets Rachel, and he's opening up this spring to water it. So we see John bringing in this event. And as we, as we saw Sunday, this, that, that event is just ripe with echoes from different Old Testament uh, events there. One of the things that we can see is that, um, in essence, a man meeting a woman at a well is often kind of this marriage thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is, that there's a marriage with Jesus and this woman. But just before this, Jesus has been called the bridegroom. And is this saying that eventually she will, by her trust in Jesus, finally have a faithful husband? as we all, in essence, have a faithful husband of Jesus? Is he saying that she is kind of a stand-in for Samaria and that Jesus will bring Samaria back in? Well, what does he say at the very end of Matthew? Go to Jerusalem and then where? Samaria and then the ends of the world. Uh, could we see this um, as, again, we talked about possibly Leah, and as Leah was the unloved one, and she was unloved by others. We could see potentially the, the reference with Ruth. Boaz was a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. What is Jesus? He is a redeemer. So all of these elements kind of come into play. He mentions Joseph. Joseph was what? The favored son, and yet he was sent away. But again... We see him as redeeming his family. So there's a lot of, of elements as we read this story and we start thinking back to Jacob and Joseph and those stories that John wants us to bring into this encounter. Look at what he says. Jacob told Rachel uh, that he was a relative. And what did uh, Rachel do? She ran and told her father. What does the woman do? She, in essence, ran and told the village. So we see that hint coming in. And Jesus here, uh, early in John's gospel, Jesus is revealing himself to this Samaritan woman saying, I am the Messiah. 
he has not revealed himself that plainly to anyone else. John chapter 9. So we know Jesus has healed a blind man. Uh, the, they're interrogating him. They say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He goes, well, one thing I know is I was blind, but now I see. And then look at what it says. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we, we are who? Disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know. And the guy gives probably one of the best answers ever in Scripture. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. But notice how we have this contrast between the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are contrasting Jesus and Moses. They're setting them apart. And yet Moses is what? The one who testifies about Jesus. So they're saying that, hey, we study Moses, and we don't know about this guy. But yet through John's gospel, we're always seeing that, no, Moses is the one who has testified about me. Again, we see all of these examples about how Moses is a witness to Jesus. John does not really present Jesus as the second coming of Moses or, or a type of Moses. John presents Jesus more presents Moses as a witness to, to basically confirm that Jesus is the Messiah. Isaiah is put as a witness. Um, again, we see this early in John. Uh, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet has said. Again, we've seen this, I think, in every gospel uh, brings in this particular passage. Again, we see from Isaiah, the word of Isaiah. This was fulfilled, the word of Isaiah. So fulfilled, we know now we're after chapter 12 or at the end of chapter 12. Um, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he had blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Whose glory did Isaiah see? What is he talking about? Was Isaiah had a vision, right? He saw God filling the temple. What's John saying Isaiah saw? John saying Isaiah saw Jesus. 6 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him. So John's taking us back to this event and in essence putting Jesus in the same context as this event. In John 7, some of the people therefore were saying these words, certainly this is, this certainly is the prophet greater than Moses. Others were saying this is the Christ. Again, anointed one, a kingly term. It's an Old Testament term. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was from? So a division occurred. Again, we see, we see here the recognition of the predictive prophecy. Where was the Messiah to come from? Everybody knows this, Bethlehem. And what do we else do we know? He's a descendant of David. What's the irony of this statement? It looks like a news media and they didn't do the research. <laughs> yeah. The irony is he was from Bethlehem. And they, they didn't do the research to kind of know that. We know that from Micah 5. Again, all, all of the Gospels kind of push us back here. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel in the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. 
From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So this is the passage that we get where it's predictive of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And it says that his goings forth are from long ago. Let's look at this, though, as we see it in the Septuagint. Again, the Greek translation. What does the Septuagint say? His goings forth were from the beginning. So when John opens his gospel within the beginning, we go back to Genesis 1, rightly so. But we can also go back to Micah 5, because this is the same phrase that Micah is using that John used with his in the beginning. So now when we read John and we see in the beginning, we can, we can go comfortably go back to Genesis 1, but now we see an additional reference that John brings in, and again to speak that Jesus has existed uh, from the beginning. Jesus with the law and Torah. Again, John says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Some translations will insert the word but there. It's not there in the Greek. The translators drop it in to try to make the sentence read well in English, but they've done a little bit of, of in essence, interpreting for us. Um, and that sets the word but for us, sets up opposition. Sets up the law on one side, Jesus on the other side. That's not what this verse is doing. This verse, in essence, is saying the law came through Moses, and even more, even greater than that, not discounting the law, but in addition to the law, grace and truth are coming through Jesus. So there is no discounting of the law in this passage. It is simply saying Jesus is with the law, but fulfilling it even more, that the law bears witness to Jesus. And again, we see in John 15 that it is the law that testifies to Jesus. Uh, Psalm 35 says this, Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without a cause wink maliciously. Psalm 69, another place, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. And we try to read this in context of how is this psalm helping us understand the conflict that Jesus was having with those around him. The crowd answered, We have heard out of the law, the Torah, that the Christ, the anointed one, is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? We go back here to Psalm 89, because where are they getting this concept that the seed must reign, or that the Christ must reign forever? They're getting it from Psalm 89 in one case. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then again, 2 Samuel, we've been here uh, several times where Nathan's throne will be established forever. And again, in Exodus or Ezekiel 37, we see this concept coming up that David's throne will be forever. So John uses the term law to refer to not just the Torah, but the prophets and the writings. It's not just the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, we see Jesus now, um, the man at the pool, in John 7. Um, so again, Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. John 7, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one deed. This is the deed he's referring to. So when we hit John 7, he's referring back to this deed here of the healing. And all of you marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but the fathers. Who was given circumcision? Abraham. 
So we go back to Abraham there. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge according to righteous judgment. Jesus is taking the law and in essence kind of saying, look, the law allows you to circumcise on the Sabbath. Sabbath prohibits work, but which command wins? Which one is greater? Circumcision is greater than the Sabbath. And yet I'm healing. I'm making a whole man well. And you're saying the Sabbath wins in that case? No, that's not the case. Healing the whole man is greater than the Sabbath. So Jesus takes their own their law and in essence is using it against him, saying, well, why are you trying to kill me by, in essence, claiming the law as your basis? You've misinterpreted that. You've missed the point. So Jesus here is not negating the law, but in essence respecting the law's bent towards compassion and wellness. That's where the law, you know, if we look at the, the arc of the law or the arc of, of what God is dealing with us, it is always arcing towards compassion, towards mercy, as we've seen in some of the other Gospels. Again, when Jesus says uh, about the appearance, he's going back to uh, Samuel with David, saying, do not look at his appearance. And again, we see this in Isaiah 11. Uh, again, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. We know this is messianic. In verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see. We see the Pharisees and the priests telling the crowd, uh, the crowd, the officer said, you know, nobody's really ever taught like this. And the Pharisees said, well, you've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, that's what happens when we kind of get on the short end. We just start putting other people down, right? We just kind of do this mess. The crowd doesn't understand Moses like we do. Pretty arrogant statement that is being made. Nicodemus, we know his encounter, says what? You know, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And again, they rip into him because they can't answer the question honestly and say, you're right, that is what our law says. Deuteronomy 1.16 is where he's getting that from. Um, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. And then in Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So again, when we look through this, they're accusing Jesus. And yet Nicodemus is saying, no, we need to have a witness. In John 8, even in, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Jesus is referring directly back to Deuteronomy. I am he who testifies about myself and the Father who testifies about me. So Jesus is in essence calling two witnesses to, um, in essence, to confirm himself. In John 10, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. I showed you good works for which are you stoning me. They said, but for blasphemy, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered to them, said, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. This is coming from Psalm 82. Psalm 82 says, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. If he called them gods to whom the word of the Lord came, and the scripture cannot be broken. We've seen Jesus use this a couple of times. Do not say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent to me, you were blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. What's Jesus saying? Just saying, well, in Psalms, the guy said, those who hear the word of God can be called sons of God. And that's not blasphemy. So yet, you're going to accuse me of blasphemy when God said these mortals 
have called themselves sons of God. And yet I, who actually came from the Father, and I am the Son of God, you're saying that's blasphemy for me to say it? So Jesus is working from a lesser argument to a greater argument. And, and they are missing the point of that. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. So according to the Old Testament, Jesus answered again Pilate and said, the Jews answered him and said, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Again, misrepresentation. So we see that and we say um, that they have a law and by that law, he ought to die. Now, notice one thing here. Caiaphas, who was the high priest, uh, this is earlier in John, said what? You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. That is, that is Christ, isn't it? That's the story of Jesus. That he should die, that we not perish. Caiaphas did not say this of his own initiative, but being the high priest, he prophesied. So it is possible for somebody to make a prophetic statement or a true statement and really not catch it. Okay? So let's we kind of establish that. So let's come back to this statement. The Jews said, we have a law. By that law, he ought to die. So if we think about that, is that a true statement? How many say yes? Everybody says one person, well, that's not a very strong yes. That, that's not a yes. That's a yes. We have a law, and by, that, by our law, he ought to die. Absolutely true. What has Jesus been saying? Jesus said, I am opening up the law to show you that the Son of Man must suffer and die. That is a true statement. They didn't know the truth of that statement. But according to the law, Jesus must die. Now, could it have been fulfilled without the anger and the animosity? Yes. They could have said, look, we know you're our sacrifice. Go do it. But instead, it was, it was with this anger, with this blinded blindness. But when we know this now, we see this subtle, we see the subtlety underneath it that we see, yeah, that's, that's actually a true statement. So throughout John, got to go very quickly through this one. Uh, throughout John, we see this term, the Jews, a lot. And it is, Jesus is always being opposed by the Jews. This should not be understood as all the Jews in Jesus' time. At times, that has been read back into John. It seems to refer to Jewish authorities typically concentrated around Jerusalem. Sometimes it's equated with the Pharisees. Um, and so it could be a localized term more like Judean Jews or the Judean authorities. If we use the term Yankee, so I'm from Tennessee. When I use the term Yankee, who am I talking about? New Yorkers, okay? Now, if someone is from... Europe, around World War II, they hear the term Yankee. Who are they talking about? Anybody from America. Okay, So the Jews could be kind of a, a term like that. That's just a, a term to denote people. But it is not a term that references all Jews. Uh, we see this in John 1. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites where? From Jerusalem. So that that's kind of gives us this hint as we read this through. Um, 
Again, notice in John 9, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. We've just looked at this story. And then we get to verse 18, and it says, the Jews then did not believe it of him. So John has started with the Pharisees and then switched to the Jews in this encounter. In John 9, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews because the Jews agreed to put people out of the synagogue. Again, not enough evidence that that excommunication was happening at the time of Jesus. This may be something to where John is taking events that are happening in his time after the destruction of the temple and kind of pushing this back and saying, here's the trouble that is now uh, kind of befalling us. And again, John 12, uh, again, many of the rulers believed him because the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would put him out of the synagogue. Again, seeing the, how those two terms are being uh, put together. So we can read this in two levels, that maybe it is to show us the hostility shown to Jesus is also going to be shown to his disciples at the time that John is writing this. Uh, even Jesus says this, says, um, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. And what happened later in the history of the church is, as the church became more Gentile, and as we, we had that separation between Jews and the Gentile Christianity, this phrase here became a basis for really unspeakable atrocities placed upon the Jews because they were blamed for Jesus' crucifixion and, and Christians, in essence, had this hatred of Jews because of how John represented this. Notice how the Jews um, and the Pharisees at times portray Jesus. This man is a sinner. Uh, they're, they're saying he breaks the Sabbath. They're very concerned about the Sabbath. They're saying, hey, have you seen Abraham? You've actually existed before Abraham. He's making himself equal to God. And notice this right here, John 11. Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And what's going to happen? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What was their concern, the Jews' concern? Political power, but to, to some degree, I'm, I'm going to be a little gracious here and say to some degree, they're concerned about their nation. They're concerned that, that Rome is going to come in and just wipe everyone out. So they do have, they do have some concern for power. It's multi-layered. There is some concern for power, but there is some concern for the nation of Israel as a whole. And they really are afraid that Rome is going to come in and, and just take them out. And that is really one reason why the leaders, when Jesus comes in to, to Jerusalem and they're saying, hey, shut these people up. You've got this Hosanna's talk going on. That's king talk. Rome's not going to like that. And if Rome hears that, Rome's going to come in and take us out. So we have this in essence, national concern for Israel going on here. Um, and again, Jesus says this, people who are going to kill you are going to think they're doing a good thing for God. Does that remind you of anybody maybe in Acts? Okay, yeah. So there's going to be people who think they're doing a service to God by killing you all. Now, we get to Alan's point a little bit. It was not all completely altruistic in their concern for the nation. They also loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So there's a little bit of pride engaged in some of these comments too. John says what? He came to his own and those were his own did not receive him. Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see um, may become blind. So we see this metaphor of blindness coming in. Isaiah says this, that who is believed I report, and he has blinded their eyes. Isaiah, this is taken from Isaiah, and we see this prophecy here of Isaiah. In essence, 
God has blinded their eyes. So could the Jewish leaders actually see Jesus? There, we could say, no, they probably couldn't because God, God did blind their eyes to accomplish his purpose. Can we fully explain that? Not really. Um, it is not indicating that God rejected Israel. Not the case. Or that their life uh, with God is cut off. But there's a mystery as to why God blinded. It's part of the story of Israel. What are they called repeatedly? Stiff-necked and stubborn. So we see God blinding the eyes of some to bring about his purpose. But notice what Jesus says. He who, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I've come as light. We've seen this, this theme through the Gospels. He who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And again, finally, I do not judge him. The ones who don't see me, I don't judge them. I did not come to judge, but to save. So even though we see God blinding, we see God reprimanding, Jesus says, My, mine is hope. I've come to bring hope. I've come to save. So even in the midst of this kind of tough passage by Isaiah, Jesus says, I'm not coming with vengeance. I'm coming to save. So that's, again, the message that we have. A little over. I made, that makes up for last week. So, Steve. Quick comment. I think it's so interesting you talk about them the, uh, being blind when you're talking about the road to Emmaus because their eyes were blinded and didn't see. Yes. And, and subsequently opened. Yep. So very good. Thanks, Steve. Uh, appreciate it, everyone. Richard will have next week. And we will conclude ours the week following. So thank you, everybody. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.